Well, good morning, friends. I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we want to offer you one. We've provided uh, Bibles that should be in arm's reach of everybody uh, in, in a chair or a pew in front of you. If not, we've got stacks of them on little pedestals like these over here. Uh, we'd love for you to take one. We'd love for you to have it as our gift to you. Uh, and, and we think you'd really benefit from having it open in front of you today as we walk through a portion of, of what we believe to be God's word to us. You go, you'll find the section we're going to look at today on page 864 of those Bibles that we've provided. Um, and, and we're just going to be going verse by verse through a small section of this wonderful chapter. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, uh, one thing you should know about it is, is, is that it's a type of origin story. It, it, it gives us the beginnings of what I, I just think inarguably is among the most remarkable stories in the history of the world. And no matter where you're coming from, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're from around here or not, like, you should know that the, the rise and spread of Christianity is one of the most unlikely, one of the most really truly historically staggering facts about human history. This is a religion that was born in a cultural backwater on the fringes of an ancient empire. Born out of, a, out of a lowly and oppressed people. A religion based around the death of, of a penniless and in some ways powerless figure that people, even his own people, didn't want. And this religion now stretches all around the world. It's taken root not just in places that were kind of similar to where it came from. But it's taken root in places as far removed from, from early first century Palestine as, as sub-Saharan Africa is, from medieval France, as, as medieval Germany is, from 21st century Brazil. These are places where you'll find Christianity taking root and thriving. It's taken root in places where it had government support, but also in places where governments have tried hard to root it out. There is no other religion, there's no other movement of any kind that has been so adaptable, so durable, and so far-reaching in its appeal. Why? What we see in the story of Acts is that as unlikely and as surprising as the success of Christianity and its global spread may be, you know, in, in terms of, of human expectations and what else we can see happening with other movements and other religions, it, as unlikely as this story might be, it, the global spread of Christianity was always part of the plan for Christians. In the book of Acts, right at the very beginning of it, we see Jesus predicting exactly what would happen. We see Jesus calling his followers not just to expect that this religion would spread, but to be the, the agents through whom this religion would spread. He, he tells his followers, take this. And not just here in Jerusalem or around here in Judea where you're familiar, the, the places where I live my life and where I did my teaching. Not just around here, but, but, but take it to the ends of the earth. And what we see in this little section of Acts that we're, that we're considering now, beginning last week in Bill's sort of overview of where we're headed and carrying us on through the next several weeks, what we're seeing in this little section is that this remarkable story, this story of, of Christianity's rise and spread from shore to shore around the globe, this, this story that was predicted, even called for by Jesus in his final moments on earth, is a story that has its foundation in a truth about God. Christianity spreads because of the God who's behind it and because of this God's decision to accept anybody from anywhere. Underneath the, the story of Christianity's rise and spread is a theological truth. The one and only God that is, is a God who shows no partiality to anyone. It's a shocking truth about God. I, it, one of the things we're looking at in, in Acts is just how difficult it was even for the Jewish believers to get their minds around this truth about God. But it's really no easier for us if we're thinking carefully about it. I mean, partiality is something that's just baked into our experience of the world. We, we expect it and are right to. It's a normal part of life. You want to get into a good college, you know what you're going to need to have? Well, not just the right test scores. You're going to need a whole lot more than that. It helps if your parents went to that college. 
You know what helps even more? If your granddaddy gave a bunch of money to that college, that'll help you get into that college because there's, there's a lot of applicants. You've got to trim the pool down somehow. There's going to be some partiality shown for one reason or another. When it comes time to hunt for a job, you know what they say? It's who you know that counts. I mean, your resume might be great, but it's going to be on a stack with a bunch of other great resumes. How are the hiring committees going to figure out what to do with that stack? Well, it helps if there's a connection. They're going to be partial to, to, to people they know. And even if the playing field is truly level, you know, even if we're talking about, say, a, a wide open, come one, come all, try out for the Tennessee Titans. The, 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 the playing field's not really level. I mean, just genetically speaking, it's not going to happen. Like, maybe, the, maybe the deck is not stacked against me, but when, I'm going I'm to go up against people who I just, from the day I was born until now, until the day I die, will have no chance at competing with. I'm limited. And it makes sense that the Titans will be partial against people like me. Partiality is, is just baked into our experience of life. It's normal. And maybe for that reason, it can, be, it can be easy to assume God is like that. Everything else works this way. Why wouldn't he? In fact, if you studied many other religions around the world, you'll find often an account of God that, that does show strong partiality to one particular family or one particular people or even to particular people who have certain attributes, certain success, certain, certain costs they have paid to earn his favor. Maybe even you think about God as a God who helps those who help themselves. To whatever extent, though, that you expect to find partiality from God, you will feel the shock of the main point of our text this morning. It's the main point of a sermon from Peter, one of the first sermons ever preached by a Christian and the first sermon ever preached to a non-Jewish audience. Beginning in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, we get our window into this, a summary of the earliest preaching of Jesus. How the apostles took the message about him and communicated it to people who had no background to prepare them to expect to know anything about who he is and what he did. What did Peter focus on? Verse 34 gives us the main point we're going to spend the entire time this morning unpacking. God shows no partiality. He welcomes anyone from anywhere. It doesn't matter who your daddy was. It doesn't matter how much you can pay. It doesn't matter what baggage you're bringing with you. If you come to God, if you want to honor him as God, if you want to fear him and do what is right in his eyes, acknowledging that he is God and that you are not, if that's what you want, he'll welcome you. Most of uh, chapters 10 and 11 will focus on this, this central claim of Peter's sermon here. The gospel of peace with God is for everybody from everywhere. Anybody can get in on it. There's, a, there, there's even a kind of wonderful redundancy to the section of, of, of Acts 10 that Bill preached so well on last week and what I'll preach on today and what our brother Mitchell will preach on next week. I think that, that wonderful redundancy is meant as a gift for us. We need this point to be made over and over and over because it's so counterintuitive and so easy to forget. So I'm going to preach a sermon today that will hopefully echo a lot of what you heard last week if you heard Bill's sermon and and I, I trust our brother Mitchell will preach next week a sermon that will hopefully echo a lot of what you're going to hear today. And we're going to trust that that's the Lord's good gift to us. That said, I, there are some unique things about the verses that we're going to look at this morning. And I want to highlight those. It's in this sermon that Peter preaches on this big theme that's, that's really for this whole section. That God shows no partiality to anyone. Peter is zooming our attention in on why it is that God can accept anyone from anywhere, on how far God's acceptance goes, and on how God's acceptance of us shapes us as a church. I want to direct your attention to these three themes in this text this morning. First, why God accepts anyone from anywhere. Second, how far God's acceptance really goes. And finally, how God's acceptance shapes us as a church. I want to now stop 
read the verses we're going to consider this morning, and then we'll get into them together. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Acts 10, verse 34, all the way to through the end of the chapter, verse 48. This is the word of the Lord to us. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. You can be seated. The main theme of this whole section is that God shows no partiality. He accepts anyone from anywhere. But the main thrust of Peter's sermon is to tell us why this is true. Why God accepts anyone from anywhere. I want to I just summarize the answer that Peter gives and then show you where it's coming from in the text and then chew on it a little bit so that we can all get the encouragement we need from it. The simple answer of why God accepts anyone from anywhere is that through Jesus, he's willing and able to forgive anyone from anywhere. It's all about forgiveness through Jesus. See, a relationship with God, a place among God's people, a belonging in this new world God is building, it depends completely on a gift that God gives you. And it's a gift that he gives you, not because you deserve it, but despite the fact that you don't. A gift that's offered even to those who don't deserve it, well, that's a gift that anyone can receive. And that's why God is willing to accept anyone from anywhere. Look with me at how Peter makes this point. Look with me, beginning at verse 36. He's just stated this acceptance, this universal acceptance. God shows no partiality. He'll accept anyone from anywhere. And, and then as soon as he said it, he shifted from talking about the anyone from anywhere to talking about Jesus. Because the people who were being accepted, well, they're not the point. The one who's, who's purchased their acceptance, he's the point. Look at verse 36. Already Peter is pointing us towards Jesus. This is just his setup, but he's referring to this news as good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Peace with God, being accepted by him. It comes through Jesus. Then the rest of his, the rest of his sermon lays out point after point after point about why. Gives us one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel that you'll find anywhere. Point number one of his sermon, verse 38. Peter sums up Jesus' life. God anointed him with power. Jesus went about doing good. He was healing anybody who was oppressed by the devil. God was with this man, and his life showed it. Point number two, verse 39. Peter describes his death. Despite this goodness, 
despite the fact that he went around only helping, only healing, he was killed. He was hanged on a tree like a criminal, cursed by the law. But, point number three, verse 40, God raised him on the third day and made him appear. He appeared to people in a body as real as yours or mine, a body that could eat and drink. And point number four, verse 42, God appointed him to be judge of the living and the dead. This this Christ who lived and died, this Christ whom God raised up, now has a job to do. He reigns over all. It's he who decides who is acceptable and who is not. And the payoff, the application, verse 43, is not run for the hills. Fear this judge. He's coming for you. The payoff is, verse 43, because God has made this man judge, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's a judge who lives to forgive. Now, how does this summary from Peter of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, appointment, and desire to forgive anybody help us understand why God accepts anyone from anywhere? Last week, uh, or a couple weeks ago maybe, I was listening to an amazing book of historical, historical fiction called The Revenant. It's a book about a real man Hugh Glass, who lived in the 1820s, most of what happens to him in the book was not real, apparently, but a lot of it was, Uh, and it was not a life most of us would want to live. This was a guy who, in the 1820s, spent his time hunting and trapping and guiding up and down the Missouri and Yellowstone and Grand Rivers, among other rivers, and the story, uh, you know, the story itself was made up partly based on realistic details about what a trip like that one would have been like back in the 1820s. Let me just say, it, it wasn't a pleasant journey. Not one that would come recommended. Uh, Best case scenario, uh, this is a journey that would mean dodging grizzly bears and dodging rattlesnakes and dodging any number of groups that were out to get you, no matter who you were. It would mean working hard to prepare and, well, first to find and then to procure and then to prepare a bunch of food that doesn't sound very good to eat. It would have meant a lot of Difficult river rapids to navigate and on and on and on. Hugh Glass's journey was especially unpleasant. He was attacked by a grizzly, for example. Uh, I, won't, I, I will leave out the vivid details provided about the effect of this attack on his person. Uh, he, was, he was stripped of his weapons and all the tools he would have needed to get food while abandoned out there in the middle of the wilderness, recovering from his grizzly attack. He was attacked several times, not just by grizzlies, but by other humans. He was robbed once, and many other challenges I'll leave you to read about. This was not an easy trip to take. In in fact, in those days, a trip from St. Louis, where he started, to Montana, where he wanted to end up, was a journey that was heavily slanted towards the young, towards the healthy, towards the strong, And really only for those who had a very specialized skill set, even among the young and the strong. But nowadays, Southwest Airlines can get you from St. Louis to Bozeman in just over five hours for roughly $300. And besides the fee, the biggest inconvenience to that journey is that you've got to stop once in Denver and change planes. Now, assuming you can cover that ticket price, that's a journey almost anybody can make. But it's not a journey anybody can make because of strength that they bring to the table or the skills that they've developed the hard way. It's a journey anybody can take because of the vehicle that carries them. Same vehicle that carries a 26-year-old Navy SEAL and a 96-year-old wheelchair-bound paraplegic can get the job done. It can carry them the same distance in the same time for the same cost Because it's the vehicle that matters for this journey, not those who choose to ride in it. I think the reason Peter takes us to these details about Jesus' life as an explanation for why God shows no partiality to anyone from anywhere is that he sees Jesus as the vehicle that bridges this gap. And he knows that God's welcome depends completely on the forgiveness of sin. And the forgiveness of sin depends completely 
on the grace of God through Jesus. And that forgiveness is offered completely to anyone who will take it, anyone who will board that plane and allow Jesus to carry them all the way home. That's why God will welcome anyone without partiality. See, Jesus is neither more nor less able to stand for a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, a rich person or a poor person, no more or or less able to stand for anyone who will come to him, any more than a Southwest Airlines flight is neither more nor less able to carry a 26-year-old Navy SEAL or a 96-year-old wheelchair-bound paraplegic. He can get the job done. He's all that matters. Friends, the barrier to our relationship with God isn't lack of money. It isn't the wrong lineage. It isn't lack of intelligence or education. It isn't lack of proven talent. The barrier to the relationship with God you were created to enjoy is sin. Sin breaks that relationship of love and trust. And peace with God comes through Jesus because forgiveness comes through Jesus. It's it's through Jesus that God has broken down the barrier that would otherwise hold us back from him. It's through Jesus that God bridges that gap that separates us from him. It's Jesus that is the vehicle you need and the only vehicle you need to make that journey. And I wonder, if you're here exploring Christianity this morning, let me just say, first of all, you're here on a great week because you you are seeing here One of the best places you could possibly start your exploration. You're you're literally in at the very beginning of all of it. And the message, what you're you're getting here is is a condensed version of the message that's at the core of it. I hope what you're seeing in this message is that you are invited to be forgiven by God. Maybe maybe if that's you this morning, if you come here exploring Christianity, one of the things that's brought you into this exploration that maybe got you over the hump to come to a church like ours on a Sunday morning, if that's unfamiliar. Maybe, maybe one of the things that's driving you is a nagging sense of, of guilt. From one source or another, you're troubled in your soul because of something that you've done or can't undo. I'm sure all of us who are here know what that feels like. It's an awful feeling and a terrible way to live and if you're feeling that this morning uh, I want to I want you to know I'm, I'm so glad that you're looking for relief you ought to what you need though is the freedom that only comes from forgiveness a forgiveness that's honest about what's gone gone wrong about about what's been done but a forgiveness that's willing to free you from the guilt of it What you need this morning is forgiveness. But friend, you must be careful at exactly this point where you seek the forgiveness that you need. I often see well-meaning writers encouraging people to forgive themselves. That if if you're troubled by a, a, a nagging sense of guilt, of inadequacy, something you've done that you can't get past or undo. That the first step towards your healing has got to be, let go of that. Stop beating yourself up about that. Forgive yourself. And I think that that's not all wrong depending on what we mean by it. If if what we mean is is that healing will only come when I acknowledge I'm not above doing what I've done, that I'm actually not better than this, Uh, That as much as I'd like to be, this is me, as I am, like it or not. If if that's what we mean by it, there's a a kind of truth in it. We do need to accept that we aren't better than what we are. But I fear that that, that in that concept of of self-forgiveness is often something far more. The the idea that, that the most important forgiveness for your healing is to forgive yourself to let go of those negative feelings about yourself because of what you've done or how you failed. And I'm not going to dispute that this approach might provide you some relief, at least for some time, but here's the problem with it. Here's why it'll always be incomplete. Here's why it'll leave a kind of unexploded mind in your soul just waiting. The notion that you could heal, be healed by self-forgiveness assumes that the main barrier to peace is inside of you not outside of you. 
that the main problem is your feelings about you, not any consequences for what you've done. And maybe even underneath that, an assumption that you have ultimately, most importantly, wronged yourself, let yourself down in what you've done. But that's a dangerous assumption to make. It'd be like, it'd be like assuming that the, the best way to relieve the pain of the burning sensation in your fingers is to take some Tylenol when what the real problem is that you've, that you've put your fingers into a fire. That sensation is just alerting you to something that's true outside of you, something that's not dependent on you, something that's real and that's there, that has consequences. You're on fire. And Tylenol is just going to numb an ache that's, that's meant to help you. The only forgiveness that can give you any sort of peace for the guilt that you're feeling inside is a forgiveness from the one that you've ultimately wronged. Only the one who's been wronged has the power to forgive. Think about it. If I were to borrow a friend's boat, take it out for a little joy ride on the Percy Priest Lake and smash it on the rocks of one of those, one of those many islands out there, then choose to simply forgive myself and move on. Should I feel okay about that? Of course I shouldn't. There's only two ways to move on in a situation like that one. I could make him whole. I could pay him for the damage to the boat or replace it altogether. Or he could decide to forgive me. And if he decides to forgive me, he'd have to pay the cost of repair or replacement. That cost is there no matter what. It would fall on him if he decides to forgive me. But one way or another, somebody's got to pay. And it's on, the only one who can forgive is the one who's been wronged. And what, what Peter is doing when he puts this summary of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and appointment to be the judge of the living and the dead is telling us, Jesus is the judge who has the authority to forgive you because Jesus is the one who paid the cost to forgive you. Only the one who's been wronged can forgive. It will bring a cost to them that only they can pay. Jesus has paid it. He will forgive you if you look to him. Yes, he's a judge, but he's a judge who wants to say, not guilty to anyone who will come to him for that judgment. He, died, he lived and died and rose and now lives precisely to forgive. You have to acknowledge, friend, if you want to be free, you've got to know that whoever else your sin may have hurt, it's always ultimately sin against God. And only then can you accept that he has done everything needed to forgive you in Christ. He has. God accepts anyone from anywhere through Jesus. He'll accept you today if you want to be forgiven. That's why God accepts anyone from anywhere. Now, there's a second, there's a second point. It takes us even deeper into the same theme. This is a God who shows no partiality. Really? What does that mean? How? Why? We've seen, we've seen a little bit about that. But there's another, there's another question about this God who shows no partiality that the next section of our text addresses. How far does his acceptance go? I mean, it's one thing to say that he forgives, that, that he holds no grudges, that he offers peace through Jesus. But we still might wonder, and, and with really good reason, we still might wonder... Are, are there still some boundaries left in place? You know, some different levels of access and relationship on the inside. I mean, maybe with God, it's like my free Spotify account. You know, the front door of Spotify was open to me. But now that I'm in it, I hit all sorts of walls. Because I'm a cheapskate who doesn't want to just pay the fee. <laughs> I, I can't download anything. I have to listen to ads. I can't skip the download of the app was free. I, mean, I guess in that sense, they accept anyone from anywhere, even me. But now I'm hitting all sorts of boundaries. On our Apple TV at home, we have, we have a pretty cool pinball game that we downloaded. Very similar idea. We got into playing it, which was a really cool level. Looked kind of medieval with dragons and what have you. Uh, and then we noticed, oh, there's all these other cool levels. Some of them are like Star Wars themed and Avengers themed. We're, let's play some of those now. So, of course, we start trying to open these different levels and we hit the paywall. 
$4.99, $8.99, I don't know what, something $99 we had to pay if we wanted to get that new level unlocked. The front door was open, but it was really kind of a bait and switch. There are tiers involved that we had not access to. So, so we might ask about God. It might be reasonable to ask. The front door of peace with him is open. I can see that. That's already more than I deserve. But, but how far does his welcome go, really? How impartial is he, really? And the beautiful message of verses 44 to 48 is that through Jesus, his forgiveness, all the doors are open. Forgiveness for God is not merely him letting go of a grudge and moving on with no hard feelings. Forgiveness with God is a full embrace into an almost unbelievable intimacy that's not just available to, but is actively given to everyone that he's forgiven. At the heart of Christianity is an offer of an encounter with God that is, that is so personal and intimate that the Bible speaks of it as a kind of indwelling, one that transforms us from the inside out. Enough set up. Let me take you to this in the text. Look, look at me at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, while Peter is, is sort of projecting Jesus before them as if on a screen in all of his beauty and vividness and power, while Jesus is what everyone is focused on, God acts. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Just like at Pentecost, without any warning, without any special incantation or any special ritual, the Holy Spirit just comes down, just washes over them. Everyone who's heard the word. And with many of the same effects that the Spirit brought to the disciples back in Acts chapter 2. When the, when the Spirit falls on Cornelius, this Gentile, and his friends that had come together to hear this word, the Jews who had, who had come with Peter to see it all, they're amazed. They're shocked. I mean, the way that the, the, the text puts it is that they're shocked that, that even the Gentiles get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can this be possible? I mean, I get forgiving them maybe. They've gotten that far. They can understand how, how forgiveness would be available to them. But, but the Spirit... They were shocked because they knew what the gift of the Spirit meant. They understood this was a loaded event full of prophetic expectation. They knew that the Spirit coming down on God's people was at the center of Israel's hope for renewal. It was, it was a central promise that God had made to his people when they had ruined the things that he had given to them in their promised land, when they had turned on him and turned to other gods instead and been taken away out of, the, out of the land of Israel and away from the temple and away from God's presence, when they had nothing and when they had deserved what, everything that had happened to them, they knew that God had come to them with a promise, a new promise, that one day he'd redeem them. He'd pull them back from where they'd been scattered into his place to live with him, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And that at the heart of that promise was a promise that now it wouldn't just be that there were these laws about what's good given to them from the outside, but from the inside, he would change what they want. He would give them hearts that love his ways because they love what he loves. And that at the heart of that new change of heart would be the promise that they would know him. Seth read this text for us earlier, Jeremiah chapter, Jeremiah's 31st chapter. They will know me. It's not just that I will forgive them for their iniquities. That's in there too. But they will, they will know the Lord, all of them, from the least to the greatest. And they would have known that almost the identical promise to Jeremiah 31 was given in, in Ezekiel chapter 36. And here, the key to all of it was the gift of God's Spirit. Listen to what Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36. I, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Here we're talking about forgiveness, right? But it goes further. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the key to it all. Listen to what Ezekiel, or Lord says through Ezekiel next. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The key to this renewal is God's Spirit, not just inhabiting a temple you can go and visit, but inhabiting you as his people, renovating you from the inside out. And now, before their very eyes, this hallmark of their hope for Israel's future has poured out on the Gentiles just as surely as it was poured out on them. Friends, think about it. Just a day before this event, they weren't even comfortable eating with Gentiles. They couldn't share the table with them and feel good about it. Now their Lord is embracing them with his spirit. They had grown up going to a temple that, that had a court for the Gentiles. You know, a, a door that you could come through, but only so far. Now God is living in them as if they themselves were his temple. It seems like these Jews who came with Peter were so shocked because they expected them to hit a paywall of some sort, right? But not with God. Not when, not when someone's been forgiven through Jesus. Forgiveness by Jesus means a welcome all the way through, all the way in. A welcome for anybody who will come. So, friends, I wonder, do you wish to experience the presence and power of God? Do you wish to experience it more than you are? When that's something you wish for, in my experience at least, sometimes texts like this one right here can be really frustrating. Because you see some people getting what you're hoping for and it seems so easy to them and you're wondering, where's mine? I want to encourage you, though, to see this text not as frustrating but as freeing. Because the message of these verses is that is that this experience of God's presence and power, it, it's a free gift. It comes with the gift of forgiveness. It's not held back as a special top-tier follow-up. It's not a new level that you've got to activate through what you're able to, to do or how you're able to perform. It's a package deal. And what's more, the context for getting this gift, for enjoying it, is clear too. When did the Spirit of God come down on those who were present? It was when they were hearing the word. It was as Jesus was being exalted in front of them. Friends, when you experience God's presence and power, this is where you'll experience it too. The spirituality you're longing for isn't waiting for you inside the cover of a book from a guru you haven't read yet. It's available to you where Jesus shows up. In fact, the way, the way one pastor put it, I, I love this. If you want to experience the power of God's spirit in your life, I encourage you to make Jesus the center of your life. Where Christ is, his spirit comes. It's the spirit's job to take the word about Jesus and enliven it, to sort of drive it into your heart where you experience its truth and power in your everyday. The spirit is free. Jesus compared him to a wind that blows where it will. You won't control him. You won't always experience him in the same way. And there won't be levers you can pull to make sure it all fits what you're hoping for. That's true. He is a free person. But he has told us where he shows up. He has told us what he uses. And therefore, he's given us the clarity we need to put ourselves into the position we need to be in to enjoy exactly what they enjoyed. Come back to Jesus over and over and over. Go to him in his word. Go to him through your friends. Come to him here where we're talking about him every single week for the whole time that we're here. And that is where you can experience the spirituality you're hungry for because God gives it, loves to give it, his embrace, his acceptance through his very spirit to everyone who has been forgiven by Jesus. You are not the exception. Now, friends, we've only got a few minutes left, and I want to use them for one more layer to what this text has to teach us about our God who shows no partiality to anyone. We've seen why God accepts anyone from anywhere. We've seen how far God's acceptance goes. But in the last couple of verses that we've read for this morning, we also see how God's acceptance shapes our church. How God's acceptance of us and of anyone from anywhere shapes 
our church as a community. I want to show you this in the few minutes we've got left. This is coming from verses 37 to 38. Look with me at how Peter responds to what everyone has just seen. Excuse me, I I missed verses 47 and 48. Look at verse 47 with me. Can anyone withhold water, Peter says, for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter insists on baptizing them. This is a loaded action. Baptism was the special gift, the special sign that Jesus gave to the church for welcoming people in. People come into this community only through the cleansing blood of Jesus. Baptism pictures that. That cleansing of going down into the water and back up again. People come into this community only because when Jesus died, he died for them. And when Jesus rose, he rose for them. Baptism pictures that. Death to Jesus and being buried with him. And new life in Jesus who has risen for us. That's why Peter commands that they be baptized. That's why we baptize those who have experienced what these believers experienced, who have been forgiven by God, who have met him through his son and received the gift of his Holy Spirit. But the main point for how, for how our church is shaped by this text is not just relevant to the practice of baptism. The main point comes out of what Peter says. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Can you see what he's saying? In other words, Peter's saying, our welcome goes as far as God's does. When you come into this community through Jesus, you come all the way in. This isn't the end of the story. So many of the following chapters in this book show us the church working hard to get their minds and their practices around this idea. They, they, they wrestle with where circumcision fits in for people who haven't been circumcised yet. What about, what about the temple and all those food laws and so on? But the central point for their church and for ours is right here. It's all right here in full. We cannot be more picky in who we'll love than God has been. This is how God's acceptance shapes our church. We want to work together and pray together for a community where who you are to us depends completely on who you are to God and who Jesus is to you. Let me say that again. We want to be a community like this one with a welcome that goes as far as God's does. In other words, we want to work and pray for a community where who you are to us depends completely on who you are to God and who Jesus is to you. That's the big point. It's simple, I hope. Straightforward and right here in the text in Peter's response to what's just happened. But let me make it even more concrete for you. Let me me just give you a couple examples of how God's acceptance of us should shape our acceptance of one another. James chapter chapter 2 gives us one. In James chapter 2, uh, we, get, we get a little window into another, another early stress point for the church on the subject of partiality. It wasn't just about Jewish and Gentile relationships. Partiality comes in a lot of forms. James calls one of them out in James chapter 2. Here's what James says there. My brothers, writing to this early church, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? Of course he has. God has shown no partiality. What are you doing showing partiality? You don't have the freedom. A few weeks ago, uh, a few of us attended a helpful workshop uh, provided by a ministry partner called One Hope. Uh, a workshop of, about how to be a community that welcomes everybody, no matter their background, especially being sensitive to, to folks and friends who are coming from poverty. 
There were, there were a ton of helpful insights in this workshop. I'd be happy to, to share more of them with you if you're interested. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But what stuck with me most probably was a case study that he gave us at the very beginning of the workshop that set up the rest of the time. He said, imagine in your church two sets of visitors on, a, on an average Sunday. First-time visitors. First set is a, a young couple. He's an engineer at a local engineering firm. She's a medical resident starting a residency at a local teaching hospital. The other set of visitors is a, a single mother with three young kids by three different fathers who lives at the assisted housing, uh, financially assisted housing complex not far from your church. Now, at the conclusion of the service, when everyone's milling around and talking to one another, Ask yourself, honestly, evaluate your practices. Which of those sets of visitors is more likely to leave with a lunch invitation? Which of the sets of visitors is more likely to have, to have received some numbers that they could call later or who have given their number to someone who was interested in it to set up some time to, to connect later on in the week? Oh, that, does that hit you? It hits me. Oh, Lord, make us a community where, where that's such a level playing field. You're new to our church. We want you here. I'm so glad you're here. I, depending on where you're coming from, it may mean that, that our pursuit of you is going to look different. It may mean that lunch is going to be easier with you or dinner might be easier or play date might be. I don't know. It, we won't connect in the same ways with everybody, but, but we want connection. We're on it. We're after you. You are welcome here. Friends, don't you want that to be our church? Wouldn't that be beautiful to see the Lord glorified through people who show no more partiality than he has? Would you think with me about our own practice? Would you evaluate your own posture on a Sunday morning to the visitors that come through our doors and pray that the Lord will convict us and help us to be accessible to everybody and pursuing of everyone who comes? I think about another example. Maybe one that's even closer to the, to the point of this text. To be a community in which we welcome one another as God has welcomed us we can't be partial towards those who haven't wronged us. We want to work and pray towards being a community where we won't allow others to be defined by the wrongs they've done against us. I recently read a really insightful article by author Timothy Keller called The Fading of Forgiveness. Highly recommend this, this article. The whole thing is short. You can find it online easily. What he's talking about in the article is several trends in our culture that have stacked the deck against forgiveness, where, where forgiveness isn't celebrated, but instead is seen sometimes as counterproductive or offensive or even dangerous. He talks about the powerful urge that, that many of us feel to identify with grievances done against us, to take them in as a key part of who we are, to identify ourselves maybe on the other side as the writer of wrongs, identifying by how we respond to, to the offenses against the aggrieved. And, and no matter which side of that we're on, if we, if we identify with grievance or with our stand on behalf of the aggrieved, then letting go of grievance is always going to be counterproductive. It's always going to be a threat to how we see ourselves, to how we want to project ourselves to the world. I'll, I mean, I'll refer you to the article for, for insight into what's going on out there affecting our perspective on forgiveness, but the main point is that in a culture like this one, where forgiveness is, is actively opposed in many cases. We as a church have a powerful opportunity to show a different and a better way. We as a counterculture can show how beautiful forgiveness can be. We can give, in other words, in our life together, we can give anyone who's looking a little foretaste of the beautiful world that God is currently building through his church, a community full of relationships restored by grace. See, in this community, our identity has a different starting point. We don't start with what we've done or with what's been done to us. Our identity starts with God and what he's done for us. We are sinners forgiven by Jesus. That's who we are. When this is where you start, there's no threat to letting go of what's been done to you. That, that kind of forgiveness is perfectly consistent with who you are now. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. That's what we do. This is who we are now. In fact, Keller says, 
You can only stay bitter towards somebody if you feel superior. If you feel that you would never have done anything like they did. When you don't see yourself as a sinner forgiven by God, you're going to have a tough time getting past the shock that someone else could sin against you. Keller's not saying their sin shouldn't cause you pain. Of course it will. It hurts to be wronged. He isn't saying that you shouldn't try to address it. What he's saying is that to know yourself as a forgiven sinner takes the edge off the shock of being wronged by someone that comes from believing you're above it all. Friends, this right here, this is central to our witness in the world. That's why Paul writes that you should not take communion if you're not reconciled to a brother or a sister. It's that serious. It's not that he sees communion as no big deal. You can do without it for a while uh, until you get things sorted out. No, that's him saying, put this reconciliation at the front of your life. Hold everything. Stop everything. Even something so central as taking communion with your community until you get this thing sorted. Because Christians don't get to hold things over each other. They don't get to. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. And this is why in our church covenant we promise to be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. This right here is at the core of our mission in the world. We get to show just how far God's welcome goes by extending that welcome to one another even in the pain of being wronged by one another. Let's pray together now that the Lord will work this miracle in us so that he gets the glory that he deserves through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God not like us. We thank you that you accept even us. And we ask that you help us to rest in your welcome so that we can easier, more easily extend it to one another. We pray that your spirit would be in us at work, so capturing us by the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us that it becomes easier and easier for us from the heart to reflect his beauty and grace to one another. And we pray that through the life that we live together, many who need this forgiveness would be drawn into it. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.